This episode of I'm Horrified is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Go to audibletrial.com horrified to get your free audiobook and start listening. It's that easy. Right now, I'm listening to Going Clear by Lawrence Wright, which pairs perfectly with our Scientology segment in episode six. And I'm listening to The Rogue Not Taken by Sarah McLean, a sizzling romance novel for those who enjoyed episode 49. So head to audibletrial.com horrified to start your free trial now. Happy listening! You fucks. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Hi, listeners. Welcome to episode 55 of I'm Horrified. Woo! That was a weird inflection for an <laughs> introduction. <laughs> it was a little bit of like a like a question statement, like, I'm yeah. horrified. Am I? Are you? That's our, that's our third spinoff podcast, Are You Horrified? Are You Horrified? See, this is the thing, is that we put little to no effort in, you know, our our one big idea but we just have new ideas (laughs) sprouting up all the time like what if we did this as a podcast what if we did this as like a one-woman show yeah no fall all ideas no follow through that's us baby that's the way we roll yep i've had a hundred ideas for audio dramas and i'll never do one i have one idea for an audio drama that i'm trying to do oh my god but that's also like every other person is doing that that's fair oh my god later tell me about your idea for an audio drama yeah, maybe this is, like, maybe it'll be, like, the new serial, and this is, you heard it here first. Oh my god, you guys. But I don't really have the, you know, the wor- the willpower or stamina to, true. to pull a lot of projects But you're, like, you're, like, three degrees of separation from Sarah Koenig, so that means you're gonna be really I am. My mom, my mom went to, like, preschool with her or something. Yeah. Um, and she said that, and I was like, what? <laughs> Which she means like, yeah. you have the blood of Sarah Koenig in your veins. Yeah, that's exactly what that means. Is what I'm hearing. I think one of my um, uncles went to school with, like, Jude Law or something. Ooh, so you also have the blood of hot Dumbledore in Who your veins. Who else famous do I know? <laughs> no one else. Hot Dumbledore? Oh, right. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I see, if you didn't get the reference immediately, I see why that was confusing. You, you clocked the cognitive dissonance on my face. <laughs> Do you want to know what makes me upset about that? Is that I would absolutely, I was really angry. You know what? Fuck whatever we're supposed to be talking about. Let's talk about this. Oh, are we going to talk about Fantastic Crimes and Where to Grindelwald? <laughs> Fantastic crimes and where to Grindelwald. Um, yes, uh, because when the new trailer came out for whatever that nonsense is, it looked really cool, and it was, like, so Harry Potter energy, and, you know, this is a broken record, but I loved all of that content so much that, like, my heart hurt for more of it when I finished all of it. You yeah, that's I mean? true. You've done a couple of rereads. Yeah, I've done many, many rereads. But, like, I think a lot of people, when there's a franchise that's really important to you, it's actually painful mm-hmm. to say goodbye to it. And the fact that there is more content being made with a known abuser playing one of the protagonists yeah. is bullshit. Yeah. It's absolute bullshit to me. And it's like, it's just inexcusable to me and very upsetting. And obviously my anger at the fact that I can't consume this media is secondary to, you know, yeah. Johnny Depp's victims. But it's just absolutely ridiculous that we're still ugh, just, ugh, I know, men. Just that we're still giving shrift. To, ugh, I can't. 
You get it. Do I have to say, like, do I have to make this eloquent? Like, you get it. It's also so hard. It's also just, like, the mediocrity of shitty men that we allow to do whatever they want. Because Johnny Depp hasn't been good since the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Agreed. And I'm going to stand by that if you want to fight me. He has not done anything good or interesting since the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Yeah, it's like, oh, well, we need to separate the art from the artist. And I'm like, what if the art's just fucking simmering? (laughs) Yeah. What about that? Yeah. What if you just keep giving him roles because he one time did the Pirates of the Caribbean movie? What if Annie Hall's not that good, you fucks? <laughs> I know. All right? Ugh. That's enough. All right. Ugh. <laughs> I would actually... I'm exhausted. Honestly, I'm going to file this away because I would love to do an episode Let's on Fantastic Crimes. Uh, <laughs> and I'll watch the movie illegally. Fantastic Grindelwalds and Where to Grindelwald them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic Grins and Where to Wald them. <laughs> That's the one. There we go. So, Allie, what are you going to talk about today? Great question, Sam. I'm going to talk about overlapping surgeries. I'm uh, nervous. I have suspicions about what that means, but God, do I not know. I'm excited to tell you. Woohoo. Sam, what are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about Lynette Frome. Ooh. Yes. Squeak. A little squeak action. Baby squeak. Um, if you guys don't immediately recognize the name, boy, do we not have anything in common. But I'm going to educate you today. Then you haven't gone into... um. Stephen Sondheim's Deep Cuts. Yeah. Or it's not even... Assass- is Assassin's a deep cut? No, not super deep. It's a... It's a small... That's one for you theater kids out there. <laughs> um, I'm excited for that. I'm really excited for that. But first, let's talk about your thing, because I have a feeling it's going to make me even more afraid of doctors. So yeah. Let's go. I... I mean, I'm... I'm not even that afraid of doctors. I was, like, a very sickly child, so I was in and out of, like, Boston Children's Hospital and lots of different you know, Boston hospitals a lot of my childhood and my adulthood. Um, I'm just (laughs) generally not very well. (laughs) Um, But I never really minded being in a hospital setting. I think I always kind of felt comforted by the idea that everyone knew what they were doing. Yeah. And also Boston Children's Hospital specifically, which I'm not going to talk about. I'm going to talk about MGH today. Oh, no, it's MGH. It's near us. I know. Well, I mean, oh, yeah. Um, So Boston Children's Hospital is like my hospital growing up, and I absolutely loved it. And everyone there is just like... It's, like, a groundbreaking, incredible hospital, um, so I had, like, some of the best healthcare in the world, so mm-hmm. that's that's cool. But MG- MGH is also an incredible hospital and is regarded as, like, a national leader in lots of research, yeah. and, like, Boston just in general has tons of biotechnology and biomedical engineering, mm-hmm. you know, breakthroughs, like over the years. Like, we're just, we're a huge medical community. Yeah. So that's going to play into this a little bit. So, as we've already talked about a little bit, doing a Hometown I'm Horrified segment today. Woo! As this story that I'm about to talk about broke in Boston, which is where we're currently sitting. Yes. Nearly all of what I'm about to talk about was reported by the Boston Globe Spotlight team in October of 2015 in their special report, Clash in the Name of Care. Wait, that's so recent. Yeah, 2015. Ha! Huh, okay. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Spotlight is a team of investigative journalists who follow stories over several years, and they're the team who, you probably know who they are because they're the team who broke the sex abuse scandal in the Catholic Archdiocese of Boston in mm-hmm. 2002. So, like, it's a movie now. Yeah, Spotlight. Michael Keaton is in it. Spotlight. Yeah. Um, it's pretty good. Rachel McAdams is there. It's very good. She plays the girl. Yeah. <laughs> Sasha Pfeiffer. <laughs> um, 
So Spotlight has done lots of fascinating and very important work. And my mom actually told me about this story back in 2015 because she was like, can you believe this? And I was like, what? <laughs> um, and at first I was kind of like, eh, whatever. And now I revisited it and it's very disturbing. Oh, so gosh. here we are. Okay. So here's where Spotlight's story begins. On a morning in August 2012, Dr. Kirkham Wood scrubbed in for a complex spinal surgery on a 70-year-old woman, which began at 7.42 a.m. 18 minutes later, at 8 a.m., Dr. Wood went to a different operating room to begin another procedure on another extremely complex spinal surgery, a cervical corpectomy on Tony Mang, a 41-year-old father of two. Oh my god. So Tony had been suffering with severe chronic pain for years and had undergone this elective surgery in order to regain range of motion and get relief from his pain. The surgeries overlapped about seven hours in total, with one ending around 3 p.m. and the other ending around 7.30. When Tony Meng awoke, he was unable to move any of his limbs and was paralyzed completely from the neck down. Oh my god. So he's been living as a quadriplegic since 2012. Oh my god. Yeah. As horrific as this case is, unfortunately, this is something that can happen during invasive and risky spinal surgery. It is a risk you have to take, you sign off on when you go into surgery of this nature. However, as you can probably guess, Tony was completely unaware that his star spinal surgeon, Dr. Wood, whom he had picked out specifically for his incredible reputation, would be splitting his time between two operating rooms while he was anesthetized that day. So this case, along with others like it happening at Mass General Hospital or MGH, sparked a renewed interest in what has actually been a long-debated practice in the medical fields. So though the story broke here, this practice is not new, or even uncommon at major hospitals, and is especially prevalent for in-demand surgeons whose reputations lead them to have patient overload. Oh my gosh. So at this point, I have two questions. Is this allowed? And if so, why would you want to do this? Yeah, oh my god. (laughs) Um, Like, why would a surgeon want to do this? Because these people don't know what's happening. But like, why would you elect to do two jobs in the same day? Uh So the answer to the first one is... Yes, kind of. Um, It's very, very standard for surgeons to not do absolutely everything during a surgery. So, like, residents, like, open and close the patient and can do more of the routine things, like, Mm -hmm. the kind of things that... I mean, obviously, any sh- a schmuck like you or I would be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> but, like, a, a resident at a hospital would not have a problem, like, yeah. stitching a patient back up. So it's very common for the beginning and the end of a surgery to be handled by residents yeah. or more junior doctors or surgeons. However, leaving in the middle of surgeries for, you know, X amount of time is more of a gray area. There are no laws against it. And at no point does the doctor say, you know, I'll be right next to you the whole time during your surgery. So they're not explicitly stating that they will be there the whole time. But, like, <laughs> but like and so this, the consent forms at MGH, for example, say, you know, my doctor or an attending designee will be present for the critical parts of the procedure. So you read that and you're like, yeah, like when they're doing the end part, right? You know, yeah. like you just kind of, you you connect the dots yourself. However, it feels incredibly shady to not let someone know something like that that would reasonably give a person going under the knife pause. George J. Annis, who's a patient's right advocate at Boston University, puts it this way. 
For the doctor to get informed consent, you have to tell the patient anything that's material about their surgery. And material is defined as what might cause a patient to change his or her mind, to say, I don't want surgery. Mm-hmm. I think it's a fact that most patients would be uncomfortable with their doctor doing two operations simultaneously. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, just because I didn't think to ask you. Yeah. Um, so then the other question is, well, why would you do this? And now there's a benevolent answer and also a shitty capitalist answer. As, as there often As are. there often is. Um, and either could be true in any situation. It's yeah. just kind of hard to tell. And maybe both for some people. <clears throat> and maybe both for some people. So talented surgeons, it's not like dentists where, like, any dentist can clean your teeth. Yeah. You know, a talented surgeon who has done hundreds if not thousands of the kind of operation that you need to happen to your body, that is not something that you can just find anywhere. People travel for these doctors. People get, you know, people are on waiting lists to see these surgeons. You know, it's not something that is just kind of like doled out to you like a general practitioner. Mm -hmm. And so surgeries are booked out months in advance. So it's true that oftentimes surgeons are faced with either turning down patients in need who maybe they're the only person who can help them. Yeah. Or double booking them. Yeah. So that's something. But then also, if you're running two concurrent surgeries that are seven hours, you charge for 14 hours. Yeah. So that's 14 hours of pay for seven hours of work. Yeah. So, like, you do the math. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So... There is kind of like a hero's journey, if if I will, Ooh. surrounding this story, and it has to do with um, Dr. Dennis Burke. So he's one of the leading players in this narrative that Spotlight uncovered. Mm-hmm. So he's another star surgeon. I think he's a hip and knee surgeon who spent a very long career at MGH. I think he started there when he was like 15 as an intern. Wow. And he ended up being dismissed from MGH for speaking up about these practices and providing surgical records and schedules to the Boston Globe to expose it. Oh. As Spotlight reports it, Burke and a small but determined cohort of anesthesiologists and other Mass General employees complained about at least 44 alleged problems involving concurrent surgeries and raised concerns to their superiors and colleagues, sometimes through official channels, other times in court testimony or ordinary emails about what they considered substandard patient care or medical practice between 2005 and 2015. Mm. So that's 10 years. Oh my gosh. Stoking their anxiety, they alleged, were cases of patient complications, including two that ended with the deaths of elderly elderly patients. Cases where surgeons were out of the operating room attending to another patient when an urgent need arose. Cases where surgeons didn't show up to operations, leaving the work to a resident or fellow. Cases of patients lying under anesthesia for prolonged periods waiting for a doctor to arrive or return. Cases where operating room staff were confused about who would do the operation. Oh, gosh. So this is all the kind of stuff that they witnessed. Yeah. Over this, you know, these 10 years where this was just being brought to light. But obviously it's It's something that happened, Mm -hmm. not just here and not just for 10 years. So a few examples of this. One anesthesiologist, Lisa Wallman, recounted a story of when an orthopedic patient was awaiting her surgery and found out moments before she was going to be put under that her surgery was double booked. Oh, gosh. (laughs) So she naturally gets very, very anxious. And Uh when she requests to her surgeon, Dr. Malcolm Smith that he stay with her during the surgery, apparently Dr. Smith becomes irritated with her and angrily accuses her of causing delays, at which point she is 
like, collapses into tears and starts having a full-blown panic attack. And so he, like, relents to staying for the entire surgery because of that. Oh, my gosh. And so this anesthesiologist is like, what the fuck? Yeah. (laughs) Another example. In October of 2006, Nicholas Gregory underwent a spinal surgery by Dr. Wood, the guy I mentioned before, that left him to struggle with incontinence and sexual dysfunction after the fact. It would be nine years before he knew that Dr. Wood... Before he knew that Dr. Wood had left his surgical table to perform a second surgery sur- during his own. All right, so let's go back to our crusader, Dr. Burke, for a second. Oh my god, he's In the June, only good yeah, man that I've heard of. Yeah, no, he's he's really going after it. In June of 2008, he receives a phone call from one of his residents and sort of like mentorees um, who was in tears. One of her patients had had a hip replacement that was continually dislocating and, you know, she couldn't get the doctor to do a follow-up. So ultimately, we find out that during the day of her replacement, the patient's replacement, the doctor who was leading the operation had left the room and scrubbed into an entirely different operating room down the hall. Um, The resident in question, Mm -hmm. the woman who was like, telling this all to Dr. Burke, Nina Shervin, had mixed cement for her the hip replacement. I didn't know you had to do that, but okay. Um, But she, like, mixed all this stuff up, like, ready for the hip replacement, but she couldn't actually do the procedure. Yeah. So she got everything prepped, and he still wasn't back. And so she paged the doctor, and um, he didn't respond. And so they kept paging him, and he didn't come back. And so they had to go physically look for him. And when they got to the operating room he was in, he just said, I'm busy. And so (laughs) the person who found him was like, like, your resident needs you. Like, you need to go back to the operating room. Eventually, he did go back to the original operating room, where Nina said the cement had already begun to harden. Yeah. So she asked if he wanted to remix it, and he said, no, it's going to be fine. So this was in 2008, and since then, Dr. Berg had long been advocating against concurrent surgeries at MGH, trying to sway his colleagues, you know, at board meetings, bringing it to the forefront to his superiors, all that stuff. And when he learned in 2012 about Tony Meng's paralysis, it was like a breaking point for him. He was like, this man is, like, his life has been changed forever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and he just felt overwhelmingly culpable about having not spoken out more seriously. So, to quote from Spotlight, Burke sent a blistering email to top hospital leaders reviewing his long-running efforts to rein in the practice. He said he had reached a breaking point, that he felt he had no choice now but to contact state regulators, the Board of Registration and Medicine, and the Department of Public Health. What will you tell this quadriplegic man and his family when they ask if his paralysis could have been prevented by having his surgeon be attentive only to him during his surgery, Burke wrote in an email, copied to senior leaders at MGH and Partners Health. Was that really too much to expect? Wow. So his superior sent him an email back basically being like, we're really disappointed that you contacted external mm-hmm. regulators. Like, we're handling we're handling this internally, and we're really disappointed that you didn't feel like we could handle this internally. Oh, my God. And he was like, you fucking didn't. Yeah. So, you didn't so no, I don't have confidence that you can do this. Any of the other times that I asked you to. Yeah. So at this point, like, an all-out catfight starts with all of these old white dude doctors at MGH. I love that. Yeah. I <laughs> I like to think that they're, like, bumping into each other. Like, somebody's holding a binder and the other one's like, oops, and, like, elbows <laughs> the binder out of their hands. That's, you know, that's just my brain. So, seniors at MGH clapped back at Dr. Burke, saying that he had performed more concurrent surgeries than any other hip and knee doctor there. 
Burke was furious about this, saying, yes, that's true, but only by a few minutes at the beginning and the ends of surgeries, where it is standard to have residents sew up patients, which is, you know, regarded yeah. as a perfectly safe medical practice. And what he was fighting against was primary surgeons and doctors leaving their patients for sometimes hours at a time while their bodies were still open on operating tables. Yeah. So at this time, Burke, I think, was already in cahoots with the Boston Globe, sort of providing them with what he knew. Mm -hmm. But when this started to come out of, like, well, you did concurrent surgeries, too, he basically took all of his scheduled surgery records, um, blacked out all of the patient information and was like, here, see for yourself. Like, these are, this is what I did. Yeah. This is what my surgeries were. And that was the final straw for MGH. Um, they found that sufficient grounds to fire him for releasing confidential patient information. So he was fired. Upon his dismissal notice, Burke wrote this to his superior via email. Dear Jerry, strong start. (laughs) I love that. I first started working at MGH when I was 15 years old. I did hearing tests in the evenings at the Bunker Health Center. We met a few years later. One Saturday morning, you gave me a tour of the cardiac surgical unit where I saw my first post-op patient. He had what seemed to me a mile-long chest incision. We talked. You showed a genuine interest in me. You wrote a letter on my behalf to MIT. I was accepted, and my life was changed forever. Writing this letter is very difficult. Oh. Yesterday morning, you made it quite clear how upset you were at me because the Boston Globe is making inquiries of the concurrent surgery practices at MGH. The hospital has no one to blame but itself. It was the disclosure about these practices at the recent gender discrimination trial that brought this issue to a public forum. It is all in the transcripts. Hospital attorneys argued in opening statements that the trial was about patient safety. Testimony suggested otherwise. You cannot have it both ways. The hospital administration had many chances to avoid this problem, but instead chose the path of institutional authority over transparency. The findings of the Stern report were never disclosed. This will be viewed as a cover-up. Those who raise questions of patient safety fear retaliation or are marginalized and bullied. There were lots of accounts of that, of, like, people coming out and being like, hey, this doctor's scheduled in operating room 21 and operating room 25. Like, how is that possible? And they were just like, it's fine. They have it figured out. (laughs) So that's a problem. The person was like, oh, cool. I'll just shut up. Yeah, I guess. I'm just a secretary. Two of our very best staff physicians have recently resigned over this. A physician must put his patient's interest above his own. A surgeon trying to operate on two patients at the same time serves neither well. Those who put their absolute trust in us are being deceived and put at increased risk of harm, all for economic gain. I have spent my entire professional career at MGH striving to provide the best possible care to patients and be an example to our surgical house staff. Our hospital has become too much about quantity, not quality. We have forgotten who we serve. Yesterday morning, you told me that I will never be forgiven. The hospital and I will be judged on the facts. But when the facts do come out, will the patients forgive those who stood by and allowed this to happen? Sincerely yours, Dennis. Uh. So uh, the use of first he's throwing names, the gauntlet down. The use of first names is perfect because it's like I know you. I know you. It's like you Jerry. Were at my, you were at my wedding, Denise. You, you know were at mean? my wedding, Jerry. Um, agreed. So that's sort of the crescendo of the cat fight happening at MGH. Malpractice suits were brought against Dr. Wood and I think other doctors named in the expose. It became this huge thing when the story broke. Because it wasn't a secret that it was happening, but nobody knew. Yeah. So it's not like anyone was lying. They were just omitting this fact about how they did surgeries. And in a sense, it's like there are so many things about surgery that I'm just going to not understand. Mm -hmm. 
So I don't think to ask any, like, I wouldn't think to ask anything. Yeah. But I don't know. It's, it's kind of thrown me for a loop. It's like, well, if I didn't ask, you know, they, they didn't lie. No. But. But it's something you would have liked to know. Yeah. And if you're taught your whole life, it's like, oh, this is just something that happens during surgeries. Mm -hmm. Then it's like, okay, well, are you more or less culpable? Is this more okay or not okay? You know, whose fault is it really? I don't know. What do you think? I don't know what I think. What do you think? Yeah, it's so hard because, like, there's so many things, like you're saying, there's so many things that go on that we don't even know about. Like, this is reminding me, I was listening to an episode of This American Life not that long ago, Mm -hmm. and they were talking about this thing that happens where, in, like, teaching hospitals, if a female patient is having, like, a vaginal surgery, the doctor does, like, an exam, a vaginal exam, and then has, like, a person training come over and repeat it so they can get practice. Right. And one day, like, one of the, like, people who was asked to do that was like, no, like, she didn't know some random person was going to also... Touch her vagina. Touch her. So I'm not... That's unethical. Like, I won't do that. And everyone was like, what do you mean? Like, it's important to learn how to do this. Just do it. And he was like, no, I'm I'm not going to. And it, like, opened this huge can of worms where people were like, oh, like, women don't even know that that might happen to them. So how can they say that, like, oh, that's fine? Yeah, and it's like, I feel like if I were in that position, I'd be like, yeah, sure, whatever. But you need the right to say no. Exactly. No, they did. They ended up um, polling, like, women about, like, A, do you know that this happens? And B, would you say yes? And no one knew that it happened. But 50% of women were like, yeah, if I'm out and the the doctor in training needs practice, like, yeah, go for it. Who gives a shit? There's a ton of people in the room. I don't think anything spooky's happening. But you have to be given the option, you know? Yeah, it's your body. Yeah. Um, And I'd like to do some... I'd love to do another episode about birth as an industry. Because oh, yeah. I think there's a lot of borderline, if not outright, medical abuse that happens during birth to a lot of women who don't know what's happening mm-hmm. and are just told to, like, shut up and do what everyone else says and is like, aren't encouraged to take their own child's birth. And their, it's their birth, yeah. it's their body, you know, into their own hands. But it's really scary because I think it's, like, because you don't know, there's so much you don't know. Yeah. You don't think about the agency that you do have. And yeah. I do think it is the responsibility of medical professionals to be an advocate for you, mm-hmm. you know, like that first do no harm rule. It's like that I think is part of that to make sure that you understand to the best, most comprehensive, you know, threshold of your ability that you understand what's going on and you, and that's what you want. Yeah. So I do think it is wrong. Yeah. That's why I'm talking about it, I guess. I think that, I think you're right that it's wrong. But now I remember I was just talking to my mom about this on the phone. She's like, oh, God, that, I hated that. She's like, I was so scared when that came out. And I was like, yeah, I know. That's why I'm talking about it. And she was like, I wonder if I'm just going to forget about it. Like, in 10 years from now, like, when I have surgery, I bet, like, because she said she was like, when that came out, she was like, oh, I'm going to ask before every surgery. And she's like, I feel like I'm just going to forget to ask. Like, if you're going to go do another surgery down the hall or something. And I'm like, yeah, same. Um, I, I don't all remember. But, you know, if you're going in for surgery, um, ask and... And you have, I guess, the right to say no. Yeah. I mean, you definitely have the right to say, like, no, I don't want to do the surgery. Yeah. But then they could be like, well, then we're not doing the surgery. Yeah, that's the risk. Which is bullshit. Yeah. Um, but, you know, your medical health is in your own hands. Yes. And you I should guess. take, you should be driving. And you should be in the driver's seat. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Oh, my God. That's horrifying, Al. Isn't it? Yeah. I thought. 
It was. So I brought it. It makes sense for the the concept of the show that we do. I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so does yours, I bet. Hey, horror honeys. We hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, we hope you'll subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at I'm Horrified Pod. Your support means the world to us. And if you're not enjoying the show, why are you still listening? Maybe you do like the show. I'm ready. I'm really, I feel like we covered a lot of medical fancy schmancy ground. We really did. Let's talk about um, some cr- some crazy ladies. Let's talk about Lynette. I'm excited. And some crazy men. Some crazy uh, people. Just let's be real. A lot of a lot of crazy crazy humans. Just some crazies. So that's not a good word, I guess. No. But as a person like with a mental illness, I feel like it's my word. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I buy that. I think that's fair. And I feel like if there's anyone we're gonna use it for as like as a society, the Manson family. Squeaky from is fine. Yeah. <laughs> Don't at like, us right now. It feels please. like maybe it's fine. I think it's fine. Um, but maybe I'm sure we'll hear that it's not. And I'm in, I'm in, open to that conversation. Yeah. If 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 it's not, let us know. Uh so let's talk about Lynette Fromm. I'm excited. So like Squeak. like Sorry. many people in the world, uh I find the Manson family just wildly fascinating. So fascinating. Deeply horrifying. Maybe someday we'll do a big episode on the whole group because it is truly so wild, and then I get to reread Helter Skelter. Uh, which I read a few years ago and is so interesting. Take any excuse to do that. Oh my god, it's wild. Uh, but today I'm going to talk about one of the forgotten members of the Manson family, Lynette Squeaky Frome. Because uh, she she didn't Squeak. do she didn't do the murders, but she did some other stuff. Yeah. So let's talk about Lynette. So she was born in Santa Monica, California, uh, the daughter of Helen and William. Uh, and William was an aeronautical engineer, so that's cool. Probably too busy working to rein in. Squeaky squeak. <laughs> Young squeaks. Um, <laughs> Young squeaks. As a child, she performed for a popular dance group called the Westchester Lariats, and they did a tour of the United States and Europe in the late 50s and appeared on the Lawrence Welk Show and at the White House. She couldn't have just stuck with that. I know. Uh, I will say, I feel like all of my stories lately involve a young person getting involved in show pr- business too early. It uh, seems that way. Yeah, so here we go. Lynette's Rita Hayworth well. also, like, her yeah. dad was a piece of shit. And yeah. Like, she had to dance in, you know, Tijuana on the weekends. And oh she was God. like, I would rather be at school, but okay. So in 1963, when Lynette is about 15, the Frome family moves uh, to Redondo Beach. And around that same time, Lynette begins using alcohol and drugs. She's 15. She just moved Makes sense that now is the time she wants a little rebellion. It's the 60s. At least she's not jeweling. She's not doing jewel. Mm-hmm. Who knows what she would have done <laughs> if she had been jeweling. Maybe this will be my crusade. Uh, <laughs> I love that. So her grades dropped around this time. She had been like a really good student before that, but she does ultimately graduate in 1966 and moves out of her parents' house for a few months uh, before her va- father convinced. Uh, her to go to El Camino College, which, like, she did not want to do, but he was just like, you should. So she starts going to that college. She moves back in with her family for two months, and then she has a huge argument with her father, and he kicks her out of the house, rendering her homeless. Oh, baby. I know. Um, There have been reports that Lynette was physically and or sexually abused by her father. Uh, That's not something we can confirm, but either way, it is pretty fucking shitty to kick your 18-year-old out of your house and onto the street. Yeah, I mean, I kind of believe it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, 
Lynette is now young, beautiful, into drugs, and homeless. And it is at this point that she runs across a man at the beach. Yeah, I mean, she's primed for a cult with that upbringing. Absolutely. So as she recalls in her memoir, Reflection, which she... Be- she has a memoir? She does, and I'm gonna read it. She began it in 1973, and she just published it in 2018. You guys, we have an Audible partnership. <laughs> I doubt very much that she's on there, but uh, maybe it is. Pay me to do the audiobook for Reflection. I would love that. <laughs> so... Um, she recounts this meeting in her memoir reflection, and she says that their connection was immediate. He introduces himself with a simple, name's Charlie, and then continues, so your father kicked you out. And she told him yes, and she felt trapped, and she wanted so much more. And he hooked her with the first of his many paradoxical platitudes. Don't want out and you're free, he said. The want ties you up. Be where you are. You gotta start someplace. Literally, what does that mean? I hate (laughs) men who think they are smart. There are, like, four men in this world who are smart. I know. And if you're not one of them, speak less. Yeah. I just honestly, like, that is something that one of the guys we went to Emerson with would say. (laughs) I just can't. The wanting is what keeps you tied up. Um, So, anyways, Charlie says that he knows all about this, about wanting to be free, because... I bet you do. uh, He was recently trapped himself in a prison for seven and a half years. Fair enough. (laughs) Uh, for what, he did not say. (laughs) Unimportant. And he tells her that he's heading north to visit his mother, and she's welcome to come along. So she stands there, and she's like, I have a boyfriend, like, I have people in my life, this total stranger, and, like, all these beautiful women standing off to the side who seem to be following this total stranger, I don't know if I should go with them. (laughs) And he says, I can't make up your mind for you. And then just, like, starts to walk away. I love your, like, husky mansion, <laughs> Manson impression. I, he it's was pretty charismatic, good. I think. He was. No, you're selling it. <laughs> I'm in. So he doesn't even get a half a block away before Lynette grabs her one bag, which was full of books, and runs to follow Charlie Manson. So she becomes a Manson girl. And by a lot of accounts, uh, notably... Uh, Vincent Bugliosi, who was the prosecutor in the Manson trial, she is the main girl in the family. What does that mean? That means she's, like, the leader. She has the most sex with Charlie. Okay. Uh, so she's often involved in sex with with Charlie and then orgies with the other members of the family. Um, and she's with them when they move to Spawn Ranch, which she considers the happiest time of her life, is when they're all living there together. And it's at Spawn that she gets the nickname Squeaky. Um... And here comes the bummer. Here's why I've only been referring to her as Lynette. They call her squeaky because of the sound she makes when the owner of the ranch, George Spawn, touches her. Uh, And some people have reported that um, it was Lynette's, like, job as the main girl in the family to trade sexual favors with Spawn so he would allow the family to stay. That's horrible. I know. The nickname's no fun anymore. No, it's not any fun anymore. Yeah. It's horrible. Um, But... Again, like, that's what's been reported. Lynette says, quote, I don't recall any problems. So she was in a cult. Make of that what you will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you kind of have to take her at her word. Yeah. But that's when she becomes known as Squeaky. Uh, and that all brings us to 1969, when the Tate and LaBianca murders infamously happen. If you are not familiar with the Tate and LaBianca murders, I am not going to get into Go them Go to here. any podcast. Yeah. Any I, other podcast. Um, the one I recommend is um, you, you Must Remember This, which is a podcast about old Hollywood, did a whole series on Charlie Manson. But so um, it's very famous. A bunch of Charlie Manson's people murdered some fam- famous people. 
And Lynette is... Read a book. <laughs> Lynette is not there at the time of the murders. So she is not on trial. Um, they interview her, like, all, you know... Did she know about it? We we can't we know. Yeah, I, I mean, arguably, Charlie says he didn't know about it. Oh, come so on. So what can you do? <laughs> what can you do? But he's I, in prison, so... Yeah. Or dead. Now he's dead. <laughs> now he's dead. Spoilies. Uh, when the trial begins, she is one of the most visible and fervent supporters of Manson, because she's now the de facto head of the family as the main gal. So she's the person who's like... <laughs> having the other family members camp outside the courthouse. And when Charlie and the three girls on trial carve X's into their foreheads, Lynette is, like, the first one to also carve an X into her forehead. Yikes. Horrifying. Uh, she also refuses to testify against Charlie, and for that she's thrown in jail for a few days because she's not answering to the court. But she's, like, good. So after the trial, um, Lynette and another family member named Sandra Good at first move into, like, a really shitty apartment in Sacramento because they want to be near Manson, who has just been moved to Folsom Prison. And then eventually she moves in with some other family members and a couple of white supremacists that are friends of Charlie. Yikes. Uh, and they, those white supremacists and other family members, end up murdering two people. No. Yeah. Uh, can't it, do that. It's based, they think, on, like, drugs. Like, the, the guy, they murdered a man and a woman who were married. And the man, they think, was going to tell law enforcement about these robberies. So the white supremacists are like, you're dead, and so is your wife. Uh, but of, like, the five people living in this apartment at the time, four of them are convicted of the murders, and Lynette is the only person who is not. They're like, she must have just not known. She keeps getting away pretty scot-free. She scot really free. does. It's almost amazing. I just don't know what happened. Yeah. I was just hanging out that day. So now she moves back in with Sandra Good, uh, and the two of them are still incredibly devoted to Charlie Manson, even though he's been in jail for, like, years now. So they start wearing these long robes, and they change their names to symbolize their devotion to Charlie's new religion. Yikes. So Lynette becomes Red, which is in honor of both her red hair and the California Redwoods. And then Sandra Good becomes Blue, which is for her blue eyes and for the ocean. And apparently both nicknames were originally given to them by Charlie. How does that have to do with any religion? He's, he started one. Oh, just his one. It's his. <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. Yeah. My bad. Obviously, Charlie started a religion. And so it's around this time that Lynette seemingly decides she will be on the sidelines no longer. She wants to be... Murderin'? A uh, murderin'. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to murderin' today. She's going to prove to Charlie how She's much like, she loves him. She's like, Dad, you never let me do anything. <laughs> oh, God. She is, uh, here's one for you Assassin's fans, unworthy of his love. So she's got to prove it. Yeah. And here we go. We love doing those deep cuts <laughs> for the theater kids out there. We see you. We really and do. And we are you. So on the morning of September 5th, 1975, Lynette goes to Sacramento's Capitol Park uh, because President Gerald Ford is in town and she wants to plead with him about the plight of the California Redwoods. So she's dressed in her red robe uh, and she is also happens to be armed with a Colt semi-automatic pistol. Yeah. I remember that red robe. Yeah. So the pistol's magazine was loaded with four rounds, but there was no round in the fifth chamber, which was the one that was, like, loaded. And so Gerald Ford walks by. Lynette points the gun at him. Uh, several people hear a metallic click sound. And then the Secret Service, like, immediately jet dive on her. 
and famously people um, like on the ground under the secret agents, uh, people can hear Lynette saying, it didn't go off. Can you believe it? It didn't go off. <laughs> oh my God. So here's something that I just find interesting. So in 1980, Lynette told the Sacramento Bee that she had a, deliberately ejected the round from the weapon uh, because she just wanted to make a statement. She didn't really want to kill the president. And investigators did find a round on her bathroom floor. So that could be true. I mean... But it could also not be true. I mean, I'm inclined to kind of believe... What I mean, what are you going to believe? Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Like, yeah. she's naming herself after a Redwood. Yeah. Maybe she just wants to talk. Maybe she just really wanted to get some attention on the Redwoods. Uh, but it doesn't really work. You just can't bring a gun around the president. <laughs> you just can't do that. But Lynette has finally made history. She is the first woman to ever attempt to assassinate a U.S. president. Finally, feminism. We've broken the glass ceiling. You shoot the fuck out of the glass ceiling. I'm so excited that we have equality. Yay. Uh, during her trial, she begs her lawyer to have Charlie Manson attend. Obviously, he cannot. He is in jail for murder. <laughs> um, <laughs> She's like, I really want him to come. <laughs> And they're like, no. Please come to my improv show. <laughs> and she's, like, so difficult to deal with. U.S. Marshals have to carry her into the court every day because she refuses to walk. And during closing arguments, Lynette throws an apple at the prosecutor's head, knocking off his glasses. And there are a lot of quotes from various people in the court about what an amazing throw it was. Like, <laughs> literally, <laughs> everyone was like, she had an arm on her. Like, that was amazing. <laughs> I love that. People are literally, like, not even mad that she did that. That's my they favorite fact of her all day. So funny. So she's now in jail in California. Amazingly, uh, in December of 1987, she escapes. Um, from jail? From the prison she's being held in. Um, at that point, it's in uh, West Virginia. Because she wants to meet Manson and he because he's just been diagnosed with testicular cancer. So she's like, I have to see Charlie. And she escapes prison for two days. It takes them two days to find her. She's so small. <laughs> and then uh, she is ultimately sent back to prison this time in Texas. Uh, even then, and even now, she continues to profess total allegiance to Charlie Manson. And Vincent Bugliosi wrote um, in Helter Skelter that Lynette and Sandra Good, who she was living with, were the only two members of the Manson family who had not renounced Charlie. And to this day, she's never renounced him and, like, seems to still believe in him and everything that he did. Uh, just to show, like, how much she is still believing in him, she, Lynette once told um, an Associated Press reporter, quote, The curtain is going to come down on all of us, and if we don't turn everything over to Charlie immediately, it will be too late. I mean, I know. fair enough. So in 2009, at age 60, Lynette is finally granted par parole. And she now lives in Marcy, New York, which is in total middle of nowhere, upstate New York, a couple hours from me, uh, with her boyfriend. With Keith Rainier. <laughs> around there. No, she's like almost Western New York. She's wow. out there. Uh, she's like where only the cows live in New York. But so she lives with her boyfriend, Robert Waldner. Uh, and Waldner and Lynette met because he was also in jail. And he began writing to her because he loves Charlie Manson. Good. So, I mean, you gotta build a relationship off of trust <laughs> and mutual interest. There you go. So he got out first, and then she came and moved in with him when she got out. Um, and as one of her neighbors said, quote, she's very friendly. She's usually uh, with her dog. I mean... <laughs> Which is a little relatable. So, I mean, that's Lynette Frome. 
here's the thing that really horrifies me about this. It really seems like the shadow of Charlie Manson has covered her entire life. Like, from the moment she met him on that beach, she has never been free of him. Everything she's done has been motivated by him. And even now that he has passed away, her current boyfriend only met her because he loves Charlie Manson. Yeah. Well, I think it's just a really, really upsetting reality to grapple with when you're dealing with these kinds of situations, like cult situations and abuse situations. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, when you get into that cult scenario, you end up hurting other people because you're being hurt in some way. Yeah. So that does change your circumstances of culpability, but you do hurt, you do end up hurting people. Yeah, she should not have tried to kill the president. And it's like on a more macro scale, you know, people who are abusers are almost always abused. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not everyone who's abused becomes an abuser. So yeah. it's it's not an excuse. No. It's not a, a justification, but... It is part of the narrative, mm-hmm. and it's really difficult to deal with that. Like, it's just really difficult as human beings to to have to acknowledge that, like, yeah, it's a little more complicated than just, like, she's bonkers. Yeah. So that's Lynette. Uh, I Lynette. hope she's, I, I hope she's, I guess, doing well. I hope she doesn't do anything <laughs> wrong. I hope she, yeah, anymore. I guess she just, I hope she just rides out the rest of her life. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I read when we were at PodCon, um... The Girls by Emma Klein. Oh, I haven't read that yet. Which, if you're interested in this story, it's fictionalized, obviously, but it's very heavily fictionalized off of the Manson Girls. It's mm-hmm. a really, really good book. Um, it's very, very good. I'll have to read it. Oh, my God. So it's very... The protagonist is basically like an amalgamation of yeah. all of the Manson Girls, and, and that story is basically the story that they tell of, like, a wayward girl who finds a very enigmatic leader, and mm-hmm. that's all of their stories, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but you can't try to kill the president. You can't do that. I mean, you just can't. I don't know you how you cannot point a gun at the president. There's only so many ways to, ways to like slice an orange. Like yeah. it's just you can't do that. Any president, don't point a gun at them. You're gonna get in trouble. Yeah, it's bad, and I'm horrified. But I mean, I think that's a really clear moral that we can take. So, like, the moral of the story is: don't kill anyone. Don't kill anyone. And uh, talk to your medical providers about the choices that are being made for your health. Yeah. But don't kill anyone. Don't buy guns. <laughs> really similar stories, I think. Really, really go well together this week. Don't buy guns. Ask your surgeon if they're going to, like, later day in yeah. the middle of your surgery. But if they do, don't shoot them. <laughs> yeah. We get. We got it. We got the thread. We got guys, the thread that connects Do you guys them. get it? <laughs> okay, you guys ruminate on that. And until next week, stay horrified. Stay horrified.